Thank you all. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Genesis chapter 1. The very first book in the Bible. Uh, Beginning today and for the rest of December, we will focus on a Christmas series that I'm calling The Great Rescue. And really my, my intent with this is to help orient ourselves around the true meaning of Christmas. To pause for this month in our year to set ourselves upon the true message of the Bible. So when we come to Christmas, when we come to celebrate the manger scene, as you see here in front of me, and if we look at that baby in a manger, I want us to see together as a body of Christ how the whole Bible, how the whole Bible, all 66 books, all the thousands of years of the Bible, how it all comes together in that baby in a manger. And I want us to start from the beginning. So I want to tell you, Today and for the next few weeks, I want to tell you the greatest story that's ever been told. The story of a God who existed on His own before anything else existed. That He existed from all eternity. And that that God who created all things out of nothing, He created all those things, everything that we know, with nothing but the word of His power. He spoke and things obeyed. The things that did not yet exist obeyed. I want to tell you about the God who made the world and all that is within it. The God who fashioned mankind to live and to bear His likeness. I want to tell you the story of how mankind rebelled against that God and brought shame and brokenness and loss into the world. And I want to tell you the story of how that God set about redeeming and restoring His broken creatures. It really is the greatest story that's ever been told. It's the story of all stories. Without this story, the word story makes no sense. And just as we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark, this is the story, brothers and sisters, in which we live. If we forget that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are our heritage as a people, then we have no idea who we are. If we forget the message of Genesis, then we have to insert a different story that makes sense of our lives. And a lot of people have done that. They have forgotten Genesis, so they have decided it's not real, or it's fairy tale, or it doesn't fit what I want my life to be. Because Genesis tells us, brothers and sisters, that we are broken, that we are sinful, that we need something that we can't do. And so you see on your notes there this morning, the main idea that I want us to see from this text, from this story, is that although mankind sinned and rebelled against God, God has promised to save His people by sending a Redeemer. That although mankind clearly has sinned against God and rebelled against Him, in spite of that, God has promised to send a Redeemer. And what we will see... Because what we will see, we will see God punish. But we will see that in His punishment, it's always tempered by grace. And when God punishes, it's always filled with grace. Well, if you have your Bibles open 
Turn to Genesis 3, just a few pages over. I'll invite you to stand if you are able. Our main text this morning will be Genesis 3, but we'll look at the first three chapters. But I want to read one verse. Genesis 3, verse 21. It said, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that this is your word. Holy Spirit, I, I ask you that you would help me to preach clearly, that you would help me to make sense of the story clearly, that we might see that you are a God who saves, and that from the beginning you promised a Redeemer, which is why we celebrate Christmas every single year. Lord, help us to see wondrous things in your word. Holy Spirit calls us... Cause it to work life in our hearts and in our souls. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So perhaps you know, perhaps you don't. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And specifically, talking of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he was seeking to answer some questions for the Israelite people. He was seeking to answer some questions for this group of people over which he had charge and over which he was their leader. You see, Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. They had been a people in slavery. They had multiplied. When they went into Egypt, they were about 70 people, and now they are probably well over a million. And they had lost their way. They did not have the Bible as we have the Bible at all. And yet God raised up Moses to to lead them out. And they are led out into the wilderness. Out of slavery, into the wilderness with a promise that there is a promised land. And so to help guide these people, to help form them into a people, God gives Moses the supernatural ability to write the first five books of the Bible. And so, with Genesis, he's answering questions for a suffering people. These people have been in Egypt as slaves, and now they are in the wilderness wondering. And so, Moses is answering these questions. Who are we? Who are we as a people? Where have we come from? He wants to answer the question, why is life so hard? He wants to answer the question, is there any hope of salvation? You see, the same questions that Moses answered for Israel still plague us today. Many of you still ask these questions, Who am I? Who are we as people? Where have we come from? What is our purpose? Why is life so hard? You see, while the holidays are often great times of happiness and celebration, they can also be times of great sadness and suffering for people. There are people who in my family are entering their first holiday season without their spouse. No doubt in your families there is brokenness that exists. The Bible addresses these questions. Because in the midst of it all, God intends that we remember what is ultimate. And so I invite you to let God speak these truths, His truths, 
into your life this morning. I want us to look first at this, that God created. Flip back a few pages to Genesis chapter 1. God created all of it was good. Sometimes we think Genesis 1 is only for kids or only for the scientists. And while it is for children, and while it can be read by those who are scientists, it's primarily for the people of God. It's to remind us and to answer the questions, who are we, where did we come from? Well, we see in verse 1, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. God is not being created. God is acting as the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the Bible asserts God. The Bible doesn't just say, hey, I think God's there. The Bible doesn't start out with all these different arguments for God. Some of you are going to be looking at apologetic material in your Sunday school classes, and that's good. But the Bible doesn't make any arguments for God. It just asserts Him. He's there. He's there and He's creating. It's a statement of fact that God is there. Well, we see that God exists, that He exists apart from all of His creation. Because it goes on, Moses goes on to write that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that we know. He's not a part of His creation, but He is intimately tied to it. He is complete in Himself. He is lacking nothing. God did not create because He needed something. God did not create us because He needed worship, as in He was lacking worship. God was full and complete within Himself, and He existed from all eternity before the world. Well, we see that God creates, and His power is seen in how He creates. He doesn't go and consult some tools. He doesn't consult with some other gods, because there are no other gods. He speaks. And the very power of His words calls the things that don't yet exist to both exist and obey. Well, we see that God creates good things, and He creates things and proclaims them as good. We see there, Moses goes through, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it's a formula. When God says it, it's ha- it happens, and it's good. Over and over and over again. You see, Genesis 1 is not a scientific text. Moses wasn't interested in explaining all the creation theories to the Israelites. How long did it take God to create the world? That doesn't matter to a group of slaves who were lost in the desert. Moses wanted to remind them that it's all from God. And not just the whole world, but that very desert that they were lost in was God's desert. And God creates all things good. Well, another thing that we need to note about Genesis 1 is that it's not about man. It's not about the days of creation primarily. It's not about how long it took God to create. Genesis 1, brothers and sisters, is a story about God. It is a story about God. It is a theological text. Some of you have heard me use that word. It's a combination of two words, theos and ology, which is ology study of. Theos is the Greek word for God, and so we put them together. We're talking about the study of God. And so Genesis 1 is primarily a text in the study of God. 
And so we are told from the get-go, God is there. He creates. He has all power to create, and everything happens according to what he says. And we see that he creates the world. He creates everything in the world, and he creates us. He creates mankind. We see that in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, when God says, let us make man in our image. And there we see that Trinitarian language, us. He uses the plural. Let us make man in our image. We see that corresponding text in John 1 and Colossians 1 talks about the Holy Spirit being present with God in creation that Jesus Christ was with God in creation. But God uses that plural pronoun. Let us make man in our image. And so of the whole creation, Genesis 1 asserts God and says that man stands atop God's creation as the pinnacle. Nothing else in creation is given the dignity of bearing his image. That is something only for you and I, only for mankind. It's not for animals, it's not for plants, it's not for nature, it's for us. Well, moving on to your second point in your notes, we see the story goes from good to bad, and then back to good. We see Genesis 1 is a very broad story about the seven days of creation, and Genesis 2 kind of pauses the story and zooms in. So this is not a chronological story. Genesis 2 does not come chronologically after the seven days. This is a zooming in on God's creation of the man and the woman. Well, as I said, man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He is the most precious thing in God's creation. That, that phrase, let us make man in our image and let him bear our likeness, means that man is given some kind of glory. That God instills in us, that he imbues to us, glory. We also see, we also see from, from chapter 1, in verse 28, that God commissions man. He gives him a job. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. So God commissions Adam and Eve from the get-go. You, they're going to bear his likeness, but they're also going to have a job. They're going to rule over God's creation. And the language here communicates they have, they're, they're God's governors of the earth. It's a royal position because they are in charge. They are heads over God's creation. And they are commissioned, given a job, to rule and have dominion. Well, we see in chapter 2 that God puts Adam in the garden. The Garden of Eden. Perhaps you've heard that language. It was a real place. The Bible asserts just like God was there and God was creating, the Garden of Eden was a real place place and that God put Adam in the garden. It talks about in chapter 2 verse 5 when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had sprung up, the Lord God for the Lord God had not caused it to rain. And then it says that he acts, he creates and the garden comes to life. And he places man in that garden. And really, if you think about the whole biblical story, think about the whole biblical story, the, this picture of the Garden of Eden really is a temple. It's a temple where God and man come together. 
Because you see later when we get to the temple where the sacrifices take place, it's, a, it's the place where God comes down and meets sinful man to atone for sin. That's the one place on earth where God and man could meet. And it's no accident that they called it the temple or the place where God dwelled. And so what we see here in chapter 2 where God is dwelling with his people, that Adam and Eve are living in a garden temple, a paradise beyond compare. He's told to be fruitful, to multiply, and to work. It says in verse 15 of chapter 2, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Many of us want to know, well, why did God put the tree there? We don't know. It was God's right to do it. It was his tree. It was his garden. That's not a question that the Bible answers for us. But he put the man in the garden and commissioned him along with to rule and have dominion and to be fruitful and multiply. He gave him the law. Do not eat of this tree. He gave him the law. Well, we see he goes on in verse 18. It's not good for man to be alone. And so there's no helper found fit for Adam. And so God creates Eve out of Adam. There's no, nothing suitable as a partner, as a helpmate in creation among the animals for Adam. And so God creates Eve out of Adam. It says that God caused him to fall into a deep sleep and takes his rib and forms the woman. Now the language is very beautiful. It's full of dignity It's full of romance. It's full of beauty. When Adam awakes and sees his bride, it is a beautiful expression of look what God has made. And what we see, what we see is that when Genesis 2 comes to a close, it is all so very good. It is very good. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame in their life. Imagine that. You can't. You can't identify with that. I can't identify with that. We have shame in our life. There was no shame in their life. Their life was perfect. It was so very good. But chapter 3 opens ominously. There's a heaviness to chapter 3. There's the dark clouds that are rolling in. The lights come down. The loud thumping music comes up if you think about it in a dramatized way. Because Satan enters. Tells us the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. We don't know how Satan got there. It doesn't answer that question either. It just tells us that he was there. Well, Satan enters and he tempts Eve and Adam. He takes them through this this formula. Did God actually say, the serpent says to Eve, did God actually say, well, Eve says, Eve repeats what God has said, but adds the phrase in verse 3, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she's added to God's law. Well, the serpent goes on, you won't die. 
You won't die. You won't surely die. What will happen, the serpent says, is that you will become like God. Not only was God wrong when he said you would die, he said that because he didn't want you to become like him. Well, said at that point, something changes within Eve's mind as she looks upon the tree and sees that it's good to eat. She decides or she experiences that it's a delight now. What God has said, do not entertain, she says, or experiences it as a delight because what happened, brothers and sisters, is that she's already sinned. She's already started to doubt the goodness of of God, And so she takes the fruit and she eats it. And she takes it to Adam and says, it's good. We won't die. God was wrong. Eat it. And so he eats it. And it tells us in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They had shame. Chapter 2 closes with no shame. And now they have shame. You see, the man and the woman go from law keepers to law breakers. They doubt God, they doubt His goodness, and they lose their glory. They have gone, things have gone from so very good to now so very bad. You see, when we begin to listen to sin, when we begin to entertain the idea of committing sin in whatever form, we have already begun to doubt the goodness of God. Just like the Pharisees, they thought, as long as I don't do the sin, as long as it just stays in my mind, I'm good. And Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you have hate in your heart, you've already murdered. And so the sin didn't just happen when Eve reached up and took the fruit. The sin happened when Eve doubted God. Well, we see that they respond by trying to sew leaves together and cover themselves. Immediately they knew, I need to be covered. Well, what we see is a judgment scene. God comes to them. What had been an anticipated evening walk in the garden with God himself now becomes a moment of desperate fear. The man and the woman seek salvation in their excuses and in their man-made coverings. They think, I've got a problem. I need to handle it myself. I'll sew some leaves together. Well, you see, from the get-go, their sin is self-condemning. Because if they were still without shame, they would have no need to cover themselves. And so the fact that they are making excuses, and the fact that they are trying to cover themselves, shows that they know that they are condemned. And so they hide from God. They are now alienated from what is most good. What goes on to tell us in verse 8, that God came looking. That God came for His children. He knows where they are. He knows already what has happened. He knows that Adam and Eve are terrified, that they are scared beyond imagination, and yet He comes to them. You see, sometimes when a child has done wrong, who's the last person they want to see? Mom or dad. But who's the only person that they can trust to see in that moment? Mom or dad. 
And so even in the terrifying of His coming, even in the terror of it, they know He is good. And what we will see that in His severity, and make no mistake, God is severe. In God's severity, in His punishment of the man and the woman, grace will shine forth. And so in this judgment scene, we see that God pronounces judgment. God judges the serpent, says that He will crawl on His belly, that He is cursed above all creatures, that He will eat dust. He moves on and curses the woman and says that her relationship with God is broken, that she's banished from the garden paradise, that she will have pain in childbirth, and that there will always be relational strife. Then he turns his attention to Adam, who he holds accountable. Eve acted first, and yet Adam is held accountable because Adam was charged as the head. And God says to him that your relationship with me is broken, that you're banished from the tree of life and from the, the garden paradise, that you will now have to work the ground which is cursed and it will be hard, that survival will be hard, that work will be difficult, and that you will die. And so what we will see is that things remain bad. When in the midst of all this, in the midst of this story, God promises salvation. God promises salvation. It's he, in His severity, He is saying, I am going to be gracious. He promises hope. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. When God is condemning the serpent and Eve, He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. We see this is usually called, this is most often called, the first pronouncement of the gospel in the Bible. God says, through the woman's seed, that the the woman's going to give birth, it's going to be painful, it's going to be laborsome, but she's going to give birth, and that through her line, through her seed, a Savior would come. And so God says, you should anticipate this. You should always be looking forward because there is coming someone sometime who's going to right these wrongs. Because if you understand that language in chapter 3 verse 15, the serpent who is Satan will strike the heel of the chosen one who ultimately in the Bible is Jesus Christ. And on the cross, what we see, brothers and sisters, is that He strikes the heel. And it looks like a victory. It looks like Satan's plan has come together in the death of God's chosen Son. And yet, at the resurrection, God crushes His head and saves His people. You see, just as God gave Israel hope that through His grace, paradise would come to be restored on earth, so Jesus gives us hope as His church. That paradise will be restored through His second coming. He gives us the promise that it won't always be like this. That it won't always be hard. That it won't always be, there won't always be brokenness in our relationships and strife in our relationships. And the goodness that we experience, God says, you haven't yet even experienced true goodness. You see, this story is not about some of the things we tend to make it about. This is a story about our origin. This is a story about 
reality as it exists now. It's God's promise that life won't always be like this. It's God's promise that He will, in fact, restore His people. It's God's promise that things will return to good. And so, when things went from good to bad, that's where we live. We live in the bad. And yet God promises that this will not always be this way. That He's going to restore. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we celebrate at Christmas. One lady wrote this. She said, we are a people of promise. Talking about the church. We are a people of promise. For centuries, God prepared people for the coming of His Son, who is our only hope for life. And at Christmas, we celebrate the fulfillment of the promises that God made. That God would give man a way to draw near to Him. Christmas, then, is about God's promise to save in Jesus Christ. Think about how do, we, how do we apply Genesis 1 when it comes to Christmas? Not a normal Christmas text for most of us. How do we take this story and rightly bring it and apply it to our Christmas season? Well, it's, it reminds us that from the beginning, God promised a Savior. And over the next few weeks, my intention is to walk you through the Old Testament in preparation of the coming of Jesus. But for now, what we need to see is that from the beginning, God promised that He would save us from sin. So many of you, I know, live lives plagued by sin. And you deal with the brokenness that sin brings and the suffering that sin brings. And God is saying to you in this text, it won't always be this way. And so when we come to Christmas and we look at things like this and think about Jesus lying in a manger, what we need to remember is that God's promise has been fulfilled. What God said He would do, He has done. Because Christmas is about remembering that Jesus' birth marks the return to good. When Jesus was born... When we read the name Emmanuel in the New Testament that God has come to dwell with us, we are reminded that the turn back towards paradise has started. Well, Christians have historically called this Christmas season the Advent. And the word Advent means appearing or arrival. And for Christians, it means the appearing of God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so as we move through this special season, it's right for us to look back and remember. Remember all that God has said and all that God has done to rescue His people. From the beginning, God promised to rescue His people, made in His image and His likeness, and He would do it through a Redeemer born of a woman, born in our likeness. So I encourage you, as you plan for the holidays, as you decorate, as you celebrate, as you move through this Christmas season, if you're like me, you looked at the calendar and you're already overwhelmed because there's something every single day. As we move through this Christmas season, don't get lost in the holiday. Don't get lost in the busyness of Christmas. Be found in the advent of Jesus Christ. 
Be found intentionally slowing down, setting your mind on the word of God, thinking about his promises to save, of his sending of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the word Advent means that we reenact the anticipation of the people of God all throughout biblical history. That we, for these four weeks, remember on purpose that God fulfilled His promise to save when Jesus Christ was born. We're going to sing in a few moments the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They played it on the bells just a few moments ago. It's one of my favorite hymns in general, but specifically at Christmas time. I listen to it over and over again. But that song is about remembering. It starts off, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And talks about, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a reminder for us to remember all that God has done. And so I want to close this morning with a text from Romans chapter 5. Because the Advent season is about remembering. It's about remembering that Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. What we see in the garden is that Adam failed his commission given by God to avoid the tree, to uphold the law, to govern the earth. And yet where Adam failed, we celebrate that Christ has succeeded. So Romans 5 verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, But he goes on, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So he goes on to verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. And so brothers and sisters, as we move into this Christmas season, as we move into the season of Advent, we remember that not only did God promise to save, but that God fulfilled His promise in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we need to pause. We need to remember. We need to anticipate. And we need to set our minds on the true meaning of King Jesus' Advent in the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises to save. Thank you that you have fulfilled those promises in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we sing now, I pray that we would sing with great hope, great anticipation, that we can look back to the birth of King Jesus in the manger, and because of that, look forward with full faith that there's coming a day when all of this, all of the sin will be dealt with and we will be ushered into eternity with you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Hymn 175. 175.